This is the History Tavern Podcast. On the latest episode of the History Tavern Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Tony, I talked to Dr. Teresa Kaminsky about her brand new book, Dr. Mary Walker's Civil War, One Woman's Journey to the Medal of Honor and the Fight for Women's Rights. Mary Walker, uh, huge life. She's all over history. Uh, she's all over the war. She's all over uh, women's the, the battle for women's rights. Um, and I know that you've written another book, uh, Angels of the Underground, the American uh, Women Who Resisted the Japanese in the Philippines in World War II. Is there right. a common denominator? Is is I don't know if that's the right way to put it, but is there what what can we learn by looking at the many roles women played in wartime? Um, is it sort of a twofold thing where social barriers get challenged, but they're also reinforced at the same time? I mean, what, what, what's your take on that? Yeah, it is a, it's a really complicated issue, I think. And it's like you said, it's, not all one thing or the other. I think what really attracted me to both of these stories is um, the personalities of the women themselves. And in many cases, of course, they do represent probably thousands of other women who may be just like them, but have, for one reason or another, left no historical trace. And I think for um, wartime especially, it does open up options for changes in women's lives, especially in time periods where, uh, especially like during the Civil War, when you're in the 19th century, there were still so many restrictions on what women were allowed to do. And when there's a war going on and with men occupied doing other things, this does open up possibilities for women to do a lot of those other things. And the ways in which they choose to do them are very individual and endlessly fascinating. What was your approach with Mary Walker? Obviously, uh, you just said that you were attracted to her personality, which is a, which is a, an incredible personality. Uh, she's so determined on so many levels in her life. But what was your approach? I mean, I think the exact quote was this, you know, it wasn't only going to be about Mary Walker. This was going to be a textured history of the times. So, uh, you know, what sort of um, what why, why that approach? Uh, obviously, I think it brings a lot to the table. Right. I I guess one of the things that attracts me to biography is how an individual is placed within the time. Um, it, it doesn't, I don't think it really illuminates very much about the person if the story is just told strictly through their eyes, through their experiences, and the reader doesn't really get much more information beyond, oh, this was the year it happened and maybe something else dropped in there. Uh, I really didn't think that most people would understand what Mary Walker was about unless they understood those contextual things about her time. Um, if you don't know about the history of dress reform, say, in the United States, you're really not going to understand her passionate commitment to wearing trousers. And even that, you have to understand the broader issue of women's rights in the 19th century. What did it mean for a woman to wear trousers? So just to say, well, Mary Walker started wearing trousers in the 1850s, um, that doesn't give a reader, I think, much of a, an understanding of what was going on. What was her childhood like? You know, again, you placed her exactly in her times and in her location. She is in central western New York in Oswego, I, I believe, and she grows right. up in the midst of this great wave of reform, which, you know, obviously that's that's her influence. Can you talk a little bit about her childhood and and, you know, who was around her? that I think helped inform her throughout her life? Sure. Um, 
and and you're right about the location and everything and and that of course was very important because New York was such a vital area for that very broad and far-reaching um, Second Great Awakening, the reform movements of the antebellum years or the, the pre-Civil War years. And um, she was fortunate enough, I guess, if, if you're going to look at, at these things in a positive light, which I think many readers will, um, her parents really were the source of her earliest teachings. She, um, she grew up in a household of uh, what were known as free thinkers. Her parents were very dedicated to things like gender equality, to, um, they were, they considered themselves religious people, but they were not necessarily committed to any one denomination. They believed that the best religion was um, religion of the intellect, and so they encouraged their children to think and question uh, what they heard in various church services. So um, there was this emphasis on um, intellectual development. I do think that um, Walker's parents did attend a lot of the um, lectures that, that came in and around Oswego in those years. And I don't, I don't have real firm information on this, but I'm assuming that a lot of times they took their children along with them. So, um, you know, Mary Walker would have been exposed to these kinds of reformist ideas, both in print and through these traveling lecturers who tended to hit various areas in New York during those years. One of the many remarkable things about Mary Walker is that she uh, she's she really values education, uh, and yeah. even after getting her medical degree, and of course, it's not easy for a woman in the eighteen forties and eighteen fifties to get a medical degree, and if you get one, you are largely not accepted by mainstream. Uh, you know, medicine. And I, I want to get a little into that in a second. But what she, she does have this drive to be educated. And, and once she has a degree, goes back. Is, do you think that's part of that upbringing, the, the sort of seeking of information and always trying to, um, you know, always trying to, to learn? Uh, is that part of her background? Oh, definitely. And I think for her, it was just so ingrained that it was very natural. Her parents had actually set up a, um, a co-educational school for the children in the community and encouraged boys and girls to attend. They didn't charge anything. And it wasn't until Mary Walker kind of outgrew what it was that her parents had to teach her that she went on to um, further her education, and then she, although she, it seems like she did always want to be a doctor. That was something she had thought about since she was a girl, but money was an issue as much as finding a school that would take her, but money was too. So her original training, um, and she worked at this for a little while, and a lot of women in the early 1800s did the same thing. They worked as school teachers. So she did see education in a variety of forms as extremely valuable, and for her, it just seemed to be the most natural and normal thing for children to be doing, getting an education. What was, how did she, obviously she differed in the obvious way that she was a woman, and she was a woman physician, but she differed also, I, I think, largely in her approach to medicine, which on top of her her sex, kept her out of that mainstream. Uh, is is that is that actually is that the case? I mean, she's start she is learning and practicing in a new way, a way that we would consider more modern than say the the sort of old school of medicine. Right, and I think back then it was it was kind of the opposite. The, um, the kind of medicine she was attracted to was often referred to as eclectic medicine. 
and um, it, it tended to rely not exclusively, but a lot on um, tried and true methods. So if you, if you studied the course of a disease and, and how it was usually treated and instances of success, that might be the first indication that that's the treatment that you start with. Um, and that form of medicine was really very vigorously challenged by a, well, predominantly male group of doctors who were really into the, the science of medicine. And they saw medicine more in terms of you cut into people, you, you do the surgery, you give them chemical medicines to try and correct the problems. And Mary Walker and other, other eclectics viewed that as um, unnecessarily invasive and potentially harmful. So she was, I think, fortunate in that she found a, a medical college that was willing to take women and it was also, of course, um, an eclectic curriculum. So she fit in very well with what was being taught there. I don't, I don't think she would have, well, she wouldn't have gotten into um, another medical school, especially one that was run by uh, what were often referred to as the regular physicians. Now, she gets married, I think, in 1855, and it, it appears to be a, a happy marriage for at least a short period of time. But there, uh, her husband, who is also a physician, uh, is unfaithful. And can you just talk about sort of uh, Mary seeks a divorce. Can you talk about the social stigma and the legal hurdles uh, that that she had to jump over to obtain a divorce? I mean, it's. It's very it's very frustrating when you read it. Right. And it was it was very difficult for her and indeed for anybody in that time period because there was such a stigma attached to divorce and in most states it was very, very difficult to get one. And I think in New York at the time there was only one um, one charge that you could use for securing a divorce, and that was adultery. And she was um, she was certain that she her husband was uh, his name was Albert Miller. And you're right; it did seem at the very beginning that they had this, you know, this soul match. They they had met at medical school. Um, he seemed to be every bit the reformer that he, that she was. I think maybe where they diverged, and, and this is something that is apparent through her entire life, there were some reformers in the 1800s who, in their free thinking, did think in different terms about marriage and about adults and sexual relationships. and they were encouraging what was called at the time free love, which basically meant that adults should be able to choose their partners based on sexual desire. And when that desire was gone, they should be free to move on. And it does seem that Albert Miller may have believed this. And whether or not he thought his wife did, um, we don't know, but we do know that she was shocked and just she was so hurt when she found out. And not only was he having an affair, he, I think, had multiple affairs. He had at least one out-of-wedlock child. And um, she was even more mortified when he said, okay, now you know so I'd be fine if you want to do the same thing and we can just stay married and each pursue our own interests. And she just said no to that. And she looked into divorce laws and throughout her whole life, this was another one of her kind of side interests. She loved the law and she could almost always be found in various courts following different cases, 
Um, she liked murder cases in particular. So she did start looking into the legalities of it, and she moved to Iowa for a time because it had a more um, lenient set of laws, and she thought it would be easier to divorce Miller from there, and then found out that New York State wouldn't recognize it, so she ends up going back to New York, and she does finally get... Um, she does finally get that divorce, but it's um, then there's a waiting period. Even though she was granted the divorce, she was, um, well, like everybody else, she had to wait, I think it was five years before it was in effect. So she's she's in this kind of gray area in terms of her marital status, and um, that's that's, though, what allows her to close up her medical practice she was um, practicing in Rome, New York at the time, and so she um, closed up her medical practice in the late summer, early fall of 1861, and just went to Washington and decided to help with the war. Yeah, and, and, she, and she offers her services, well, offers her services to she, I think, initially tries. She tries to seek a commission right away. I, I forget if it was right. with the with the depart the War Department or uh, I forget who it was with. But you know, she is not accepted. She, I think, she's offered a a job as a nurse um, and ends up in a hospital in Washington. But before we sort of get to her war record, which is which is which is insane in terms of the things that she did and she accomplished. What what drove her? I mean, you know, I think, as you just said, in part, you know, she's coming off of a divorce and she's, you know, she's able to pour herself into this. But she's a, a very vehement believer in the cause. And I think to her, the cause is a number of things. But I mean, you know, it's as you said, she's acting as a lawyer at some parts in the war, helping men who are in prison because they're they're believed to be deserters. She's helping men communicate home. Obviously, she's offering her medical talents. I mean, this is an incredibly remarkable woman who is driven by something. Right. And I think that that is the drive comes from her belief in equality. And I don't think, even though the timing of it, it, it comes right after her divorce. I, I really don't think that 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 she's like doing this out of sorrow because her marriage has collapsed. I, I don't think that that's part of it. I think that, well, the only part of it it might be related to is that it allowed her kind of a clean break and right. that she could, she could wrap up affairs and feel like she wasn't leaving patients behind in Rome because she did feel, you know, she felt a commitment to the people she'd been treating there and she just wanted to make sure that that was all set, that she didn't have to worry about it. But in terms of her beliefs about equality, she just thought, well, she was a qualified medical professional. She had not only attended a medical college, she had her diploma. So just like everybody else who graduated, she, she had that document. And she just very firmly believed that the fact that she was a woman should not prevent the United States military from commissioning her as a surgeon, which the Army was in dire need of. I mean, when the war started, of course, neither side was really prepared for it in, in terms of a major military conf confrontation. So especially medical care was really a huge issue. And so she figured she would just go and offer her services, and she couldn't think of any reason why she would be refused. And she, and she never backs down. I mean, she, she, she no. throughout the war, is persistent in trying to get that commission. And she, right. she never gets it. How close does she get? She gets as close as being hired by the Army. And this, this was a formal 
employment contract, she became a contracted civilian assistant surgeon. And although this was not what she wanted, most of all, she was satisfied with that because, again, it was an official recognition of her talents, but it took her a very long time to get that. That doesn't happen until 1864. Right. right. So but between 1861 and 1864, she is essentially donating her services to the United States Army whether she's working at a hospital in Washington, D.C., or whether she's out in one of the more forward locations um, tending to the troops, it's, it's all voluntary. What, what was her time? Uh, and again, she's right in the middle of this war. It's, she's not in, like you said, I mean, she's in a D.C. hospital uh, early in the war, but she, she ends up uh, in a number of places, I think just outside of Fredericksburg, uh, uh, she, I think, is in Pennsylvania at one point after Gettysburg. She ends up in Georgia, right on, you know, I mean, in enemy territory in 1864. What was her time there like? I think for her, it was more of what she expected her war work would be, that it was out in the field, that it was, it wasn't daily danger. Uh, the fact that she, she was at a place called um, Lee and Gordon's Mills in northern Georgia. So uh, the United States Army was occupying that section of the south, but it was in an unstable area, meaning if she ever traveled away from that encampment, and, and she actually, she's hired on... Um, as the assistant surgeon for the 52nd Ohio Volunteers. They had lost their surgeon, uh, I think, shortly after the beginning of 1864, and she was hired to fill that position. So she goes there, she knows, and she knows the location, and I, I think she accepted that because it allowed her to do the two things that she thought she was best equipped to do in the war. One, of course, was the the medical side of it. She, The men needed to be treated. There weren't very many uh, battle injuries at that point anymore. Uh, most of the men who were still there in the encampment were recuperating from illnesses. There weren't a whole lot of active engagements beyond some isolated skirmishes, I think, with Confederate soldiers. But the other thing that she believed she was uniquely qualified to do was to act as a spy. And this ties into her medical work because she was encouraged to go out away from the encampment and to treat the civilians in the area, uh, many of whom had been without medical care for two or three years by this point in the war. And um, she does this not only to help people, but she knows she can gather intelligence. And this is all in preparation for Sherman's march to the sea. So she wants to be able to get as much information she can about Confederate activity in the area that she can pass along. And she ends up getting captured uh and spends, I, I forget, it's at least a few months in a Richmond. Right, it's four months. Four months. Yeah. What was their time like there? It was difficult. She, the Thunder Prison where she was in Richmond was certainly, I, I think when most people think about prison camps in the Civil War, they do think about Andersonville and all of the horror stories that came out from there. And, uh, the Thunder Prison certainly was not at that level. And also the fact that she was a woman did help with the way that she was treated, but it was not, um, it was not like a four month vacation. She, uh, she had to struggle to get food. Um, she struggled with 
and, and there is, I think, some evidence that this was psychologically very, very hard on her as well. The just the the captivity itself, and not knowing really what the the Confederates were going to do with her, she sort of assumed that she would be exchanged, but she had no idea how long it would take. And um, especially during 1864, the Confederacy was also already experiencing food shortage problems themselves. So prisoners are sort of last on the list to get anything. And um, she, she really struggled with health problems, both physical and emotional, during those four months that she was a prisoner. Uh, and, and I, I think, I forget if it's before, it's after she, she ends up, uh, at a, in a union prison running part of it. Is that correct? Uh, do I have my, the timeline right? Um, yeah. She, yeah. Okay. Uh, what, what, and what was her experience there? And that was, that I think helps her get, get back on her feet again. She, despite her captivity, and despite the health problems she had, she wanted to go back to work. And like you said before, she never gave up on this idea of getting a commission. And she actually thought that after being a prisoner, she might stand a better chance at getting that because she, um, she was actually traded for some Confederate military personnel. So she thought, well, if if the United States was willing to enter into this exchange with the Confederacy, they must consider her to be part of their military. And so she thought maybe it would be easier to get a commission after that was all over. It still wasn't. But she was given, um, she goes to Kentucky at that point, and um, she, I think it's Kentucky. Um, I, I should know this I th- right I off the bat. I think it's yeah. Louisville, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, and she, so she does get put in charge of the women who were imprisoned by the United States government, women uh, who had been expressing Confederate sympathies. And this is a little tricky for her because although she feels, of course, medically qualified to take care of these women, she finds that she has a real hard time dealing with them because they're Confederate sympathizers. And she does not, I mean, she does not give them any allowances for their beliefs. And and she gets into some trouble for that. Some of the the male doctors were, um, well, they also kind of had their own thing going with running this, this hospital and they didn't like having her interfere. And so they they try to go over her head to the to the local military officials to get Mary Walker kicked out. Um, she does finally agree to leave. And by this point, the war is winding down and she knows that she's, she's finished with, with her service with the army. Um, although again, she, she's not quite willing to give up. She, even after the end of the war, she thinks then because of her wartime service, the army would still commission her in peacetime to work as a doctor. And that also doesn't come to pass. She is ultimately awarded the Medal of Honor uh, by Andrew Johnson. But the way that I sort of read it was uh, that was sort of a middle ground uh, because she didn't right. have that status as a military person, but she, it was also recognized by people in Johnson, some people, not all, uh, not all of them, but some people in his administration that there should be some recognition. So, I mean, am I reading that right? Exactly. I think what, what happened was, and, and this gets back to this issue that in her own time, she was a very well-known person not necessarily well-liked, but very well-known. And in Washington, D.C., during the war, almost everybody knew who Mary Walker was. So she had quite a bit of, you know, you could call it notoriety even. And after the war was over and she returned to Washington, she starts to figure out her post-war life. And as she's 
continuing to seek a commission, you know, she and she does. She writes to the people who have the power. She she writes to Edwin Stanton, the Secretary of War, and he's very well acquainted with her record. And um, Stanton tells the Judge Advocate General Joseph Holt, "Well, you know what? What do you think we can do with her? Um, can is there any precedent for giving her a commission?" And it's Holt who, who goes through and, and looks at everything, and his conclusion is, no, there is no precedent for giving a woman a commission in the military, so we can't do that. He's, he's not about to set a new precedent. But he says, there is the Medal of Honor. And if you look at her service to the United States Army during the course of the war, and especially that she was willing to carry on this spying activity and then sort of pay the price for that by spending four months in a Confederate prison, then maybe the Medal of Honor would be the best thing for her. If she understands very clearly, and, and, this, and you're right, this was kind of the, the consolation prize, not that the Medal of Honor is not a worthwhile award sure. or anything, but it, it was not what she wanted. She wanted the commission. And she even went so far as to tell Stanton that she would be willing upon receiving the commission to immediately resign it. And, and she just, she just wanted that, that recognition, right. but they wouldn't even go for that. So um, if she would, but in getting awarded the medal of honor, this came with the understanding she would drop her pursuit of the commission. And so this is what happened. And of course, the Medal of Honor was, was a big deal. It still is today. So this was not a small gesture on behalf of the United States government. It really did mean something. And for the rest of her life, of course, Dr. Walker was very proud of this medal. And she... Um, maintained a long-term fondness for President Johnson because he was the one who wrote out the proclamation and, you know, recognized her for her service when really so few people had during the course of the war. You write about her sort of being the ultimate inside outsider. And I think one of the issues that sort of put her in both categories is dress reform, which which you mentioned earlier. What so she she was absolutely dedicated to wearing clothing that just made sense in terms of living day to day and being a human being, which meant that she wore pants uh, or trousers, as you said, under a dress. And then as she got older, it sort of became, as as the newspapers wrote about, because they wrote about her often, more and more masculine looking to the point where, you know, she was wearing men's suits of the day. But where did dress yeah. reform place her in terms of the women's rights movement? I, You know, it's so funny to see, see this play out and so interesting. She is so respected by everybody, even if they don't necessarily agree with her. I, I, is that the right take? I mean... I think dress reform is seen as a little bit of a distraction um, by many uh, in the women's rights movement. Is that true? That is true. And that, I think, is one of the first things that kind of marginalizes her from the mainstream movement. When, when the whole issue of women's rights started in the decades prior to the Civil War, voting rights was not really at the center of it. It, of course, becomes that way after the war, but there were decades before the war where women's rights activists were interested in other things. Dress reform was one, um, equal access to education and employment, those were other things. Married women's property rights, that was an even bigger thing. So her interest in dress reform. And so 
some people might be more familiar if you use the phrase bloomer costume. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and you, you come up with that, that image of the big pantaloons under the, the dress. And um, for Mary Walker, that was the basis of women's inequality. She traced it all back to this artificial division in the way that men and women were supposed to dress. And so for her, everything, all, all other matters of equality stemmed from righting that particular wrong. If, if you started with dress reform, in other words, and took care of that, that would have a ripple effect and cause equality in all other aspects of women's lives. And that's not how other women's rights activists saw it, because even during the 1850s, which was kind of both the high point and the low point of the dress reform movement for most people, that bloomer costume attracted so much negative attention that other women's rights supporters just said, it's not worth it to endure this kind of public ridicule, to, ha to risk having the entire women's rights movement collapse because of a pair of bloomers. We're just not going to do that. So people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who of course goes on to become one of the biggest names in this whole, um, in the suffrage movement and women's rights, she gives up on this early on because she doesn't see she doesn't see its importance the same way that Mary Walker does. But where Stanton and other women are willing to give that up and move on, Mary Walker is not, and she never would be. And so that's the first thing that, that starts to give her that outsider status. Um, after the Civil War, a lot of women's rights activists who know her and still respect her though are are starting to see her as more of an odd person because of her insistence that this is right and she's getting arrested and 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 the newspapers are loving writing all about you know the so-called weird attire that she's wearing uh yeah one of the other things that um that sort of put her on the outside again while you know it seeming she she had this respect but she starts to support the Democratic Party. Uh, and you mentioned Andrew Johnson. Uh, she had, obviously, uh, uh, she, she liked the fact that uh, he was the one that awarded her the Medal of Honor. But it didn't stop there. She started supporting uh, Samuel Tilden. Uh, and I think it, uh, pretty much the Democratic Party the rest of her life, while most women's rights advocates sort of associated with the Republican Party. So that's, how did that make sense to her, the Democratic Party? Uh, I, that, I'm not totally sure. I think it, it may have a lot to do with her New York connections and the way that she tried to participate both in New York state politics and in national politics. And I, I think it may also be tied to, it's, it's kind of hard to get down to the, the basics of this, but it, it might come down to the way that racism was influencing the, the women's suffrage movement after the war. And this, this started with the wording of both the 14th and the 15th Amendments and the fact that a lot of women's rights supporters were really bothered by the fact that using the word male in a constitutional amendment and talking about voting rights and raising the issue of race, this to them signaled that black men would be getting the vote before women, and especially white women. And 
there is some strong evidence that Mary Walker was one of these women who was one of these white women who was concerned about white women getting left out of this process. And she may have started her attraction to the Democratic Party because some women just felt that the Republicans had betrayed them, that they had spent a lot of time working on abolition, which of course was um, a great cause for the Republican Party, and that they were expecting perhaps some kind of quid pro quo that after the war the Republicans would support women's suffrage, and then they really didn't. And I think this this did cause some women to turn more toward the Democratic Party, and um, Mary Walker ended up being one of those. What? So... So, to the the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendment. I, well, first off, what what is Mary Walker's constitutional philosophy, which is much different than Stanton and Anthony? Uh, she, I mean, Stanton and Anthony fight for it's the rest of their lives for another amendment that specifically mentions women, but Mary Walker, obviously, there's a there's a fight that that needs to be fought, but. Uh, it's not necessarily for an amendment for her. This is the other thing that makes her an outsider in the movement. And this has to do with what comes to be known in the suffrage movement as the new departure. And this was actually an interpretation that was embraced for a short time, even by people like Stanton and Anthony. The New Departure looked at the language of the first section of the 14th Amendment where it talked about who was a citizen of the United States and the rights that all citizens held and that individual states could not infringe on these rights. And so what these suffragists concluded then was that as citizens, women then were entitled to vote. It's, it's kind of an interesting interpretation. And it was something that the suffragists themselves, for some reason, called the new departure. I'm not exactly sure why, um, maybe just because it was a different reading of the 14th Amendment. And they actually used this self-styled interpretation as a justification for sending women to the polls to vote. And, and this was a thing that, that went on uh, as early as the late 1860s and even into the early part of the 1870s was that on election day, some very intrepid women would just show up at the polls and demand to cast a ballot. And what they were trying to do, of course, beyond voting, was to force some kind of court decision or congressional action determining whether or not that new departure interpretation was legally correct. Now, Mary Walker would maintain her entire, for the rest of her life, that it was correct, that the Constitution already gave women voting rights. So, there really was no need for another constitutional amendment. All you needed was Congress to pass enabling legislation, to have Congress take action on this, to make it happen, in other words. So just like with the bloomer costume and dress reform, this was something she held on to long after other activists gave it up, because actually in the mid-1870s, the United States Supreme Court did look at the new departure and said, no, this is not a proper interpretation of the Constitution. Women do not have voting rights because of the 14th Amendment. So really, the the new departure was dead at that point legally. And Mary Walker's response was basically, well, the Supreme Court made a mistake. They don't know what they're talking about. It gets kind of 
personal between Mary Walker and Anthony and Stanton at times. And there's a really good book, and I I, I hate that I'm, I'm going to forget the author's name, but The Myth of Seneca Falls. Where, yes. Where Anthony and Stanton are fighting, you know, uh, vehemently to sort of control how the how the movement is perceived. Uh, and that's not to take away any of the work that they did. But it it frustrated Walker. And there's a quote, I don't have it exactly in front of me, but, you know, essentially she said, you work for yourselves, you don't work for the cause. Um, it it was really shocking to read that. But I, I know the book you're talking about, and I, you know, I have to say I'm not quite sure about the author, the pronunciation of the author's last name, but it's Lisa Tetralt, who wrote The Myth of Seneca Falls, and um, it really did have a strong influence on the way I looked at Mary Walker's contributions to the women's suffrage movement, because in The Myth of Seneca Falls, it really does set up this, uh, and, and knocks down this belief that everything about the women's rights movement was always about women's suffrage, and Stanton and Anthony were always the leaders of this movement, and um, she she shows very clearly that this was not the case. And I I did find throughout Mary Walker's various experiences with the suffrage movement, you do find many more smaller organizations. You find a lot of women like Mary Walker who were essentially jockeying for leadership roles, that there was no real consensus from the beginning that Stanton and Anthony were the leaders. And so you do have Mary Walker who is challenging these women and trying to tell other people, well, no, um, they don't always have the right ideas. And maybe if people had been listening to me longer, uh, women would have already had the right to vote. And, you know, she does accuse, and especially she she tangled with Susan B. Anthony several times, and she did accuse Anthony of just dragging out this whole process so that she could be important. And this is not really the the image that we tend to have of these women, but it did it did get into some really difficult situations. There were uh, there was at least one meeting, um, a national suffrage meeting, where Anthony called the police and wanted them to remove Mary Walker from the premises. So again, these are not things we normally associate with this um, women's suffrage movement. She lives long uh, after the war. She dies in 1919. She tours. uh, She gives speeches. She fights and fights for uh, a pension, I think, in disability pay, because her eyesight was damaged. Um, but in 1917, two years before she dies, her Medal of Honor is taken away. Uh, I, I guess my first question is: Does she is she technically is does what's her status now? Does she have the Medal of Honor? She does. Okay. And this this was a really interesting situation. Um, there was a review of all of the Medal of Honor awardees that was undertaken in 1916. So again, the context is so important here. This is two years after the start of the First World War. The United States has not officially entered the war at this point. But when I read this, all I can think of is the military establishment kind of knew what was coming. And they were looking at these award winners and they were trying to decide what would be happening with this next war. Because yeah, certainly when the United States got involved in World War I, there would be more of these medals awarded. And at that point, there was also a movement to add a, a stipend, um, you know, sort of like a pension for the people who were on this Medal of Honor honor roll. And so I think kind of in preparation for that, um, there was a review of all these cases and Mary Walker and about, and it wasn't just her, she was not targeted for this 
individually, but Mary Walker and over 900 other people had their names stricken from this honor roll. So they, they would not then be eligible for any Medal of Honor pension. And um, it, was, it was just, in her case, it was justified on the grounds that she had not been uh, a formal member of the military and that she had not been acti- actively engaged in combat with the enemy. So they used this as a way of rescinding her Medal of Honor. And there are also stories, and I, I think she may have, she may have misunderstood um, what happened. The military did not expect all these people to send back their awards. Um, it, you know, it's not like they were going to send people around to their houses and, and confiscate their their medals. Um, but Mary Walker made it very plain that she was not going to give up wearing her award. She she always wore her pin, and um, her again her argument was this had been a an honor conferred by President Johnson, and he was the only one who could take it away from her. So she she rejected the notion that some military review board could take away her medal. So she, she wore it until she died. Um, I think she was buried with it. Uh, she, she wore one of it, one of the medals, uh, when she was buried and, um, almost, almost immediately after that, uh, she died in 1919. As you said, this was before, both houses of Congress passed the suffrage amendment. So she, she didn't live quite long enough to see women get voting rights, uh, national voting rights. But not long after her death, there started to be some talk about restoring her medal. And that would take until 1977. Wow. Wow. It's a remarkable story. Um, and, uh, Dr. Teresa Kaminsky. The book is Dr. Mary Walker's Civil War, One Woman's Journey to the Medal of Honor and the Fight for Women's Rights. Dr. Teresa Kaminsky, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, We rescheduled once uh, before because I just adopted a dog. So I I thank you very much for doing it and being very understanding. You're very welcome. And I hope you and uh, your girlfriend and your whole household have fun with that new puppy. Thank you for listening to the History Tavern podcast, and thank you to Dr. Teresa Kaminsky. You can follow this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook.